Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is language historian and theatre critic Henry Hitchings. If you've ever wondered why you were taught at school that ending a sentence with a preposition was not good or proper English, then keep listening, and you'll shortly find out why. Regular listeners to the podcast may remember my interview with Henry from 2009, in which we spoke about his book, The Secret Life of Words, How English Became English. In my recent interview with him, we tackled the much more contentious question of what makes proper English, a subject he addresses in his new book, The Language Wars. I began by asking him what he thought was at stake when we talk about proper English. I think the thing is that whenever we talk about about English, a lot of other things are at stake. When we talk about proper English, what very quickly becomes at stake is all the other things that we, all the other ideas that we have to do with propriety. Mm. So someone who is a defender of proper English is also a defender of what he or she perceives as proper behavior and certain standards in society. And when they see someone questioning proper English, abusing proper English, as it were, they think that this is not just merely a linguistic problem, but actually a wider social problem. Mm. Uh, And that's why people get so exercised about it. But of course, the word proper really always has to be in inverted commas. Who says that something is proper? From whom do we get this, this notion that something is proper? The answer is really whoever says so. Uh, it's entirely normal for people to think that the language that they use is the best version of it. That's true right across the social spectrum, I think. Mm. There have always been influential people in society, people who hold positions of power, who've wanted to foist their ideas about usage on others. Um, not always very successfully, it has to be. Mm. I mean, what is instructive from the historical arc of the book is that the idea of the language degenerating and the fears that that, that, that engenders go way, way back. Yes. I mean, I, one of the things that really I suppose I sort of took um, some impetus from when I was writing the book was the fact that I quite often found myself having conversations with people who would begin by saying something like, don't you think this is a uniquely depressing moment in the history of English? Mm. And I think it's quite seductive. I think one's always rather seduced by the idea that one lives in interesting times. But Mm. I don't think the present moment is peculiarly sad. Uh, I think it is normal to imagine that you're living in an age of of anarchy. But that's really to be myopic about the problems Mm. of every other age. It's sort of narcissistic, really, to think that the age that you're living in in is one where the problems are particularly serious and certainly what's interesting about opening up the, the historical perspectives is that we see that for example in the middle of the 19th century people were predicting that within 100 or 150 years Britons and Americans would be mutually unintelligible and you go back almost 500 years and you've got people suggesting that um, for example it's a terrible problem that people who travel abroad start to import foreign terms um, mm. and there's, there's, there are lots of people who want to try and defend the English language from those as it were foreign invasions mm. really as long as we've got documentation relating to attitudes to the language we find debate often very heated and a lot of anxiety about as you say degeneration and when writers become self-conscious about their language they're trying to establish its worth, aren't they, in the first instance? They're trying to sort of say this is, this is a worthy language in comparison with Latin and French and Greek. 
That's absolutely right. And, and actually, if you go back to the Renaissance, and it was really the first time that there was a sense of English as a language that was suitable for higher learning for the more refined purposes. Mm. And, and really, by the, by the 18th century, that's quite secure, but you get some transitional moments. So, for example, Newton initially writes in Latin, but then switches to English. This is something which is actually going on much longer. So, for mm. example, in the 14th century, Chaucer might very well have written in, in French or indeed Latin, but chose to write in English in order to dignify mm. the vernacular, in order to strengthen its position. So it's not that this is necessarily something completely new in the Renaissance, but the Renaissance is the period when suddenly you get the sense that glorifying the English language can be part of a bigger project to glorify the, as it was then, English nation. It does seem to me that Latin casts a very long shadow over English and that many of the rules that the, that the pedants still you know, aspire to, to defend come from this sort of idea that Latin really is the model of how a well-regulated language should function. You're absolutely right. And, um, of course, one of the seductions of Latin is that it is a dead language, so it doesn't change. Mm. So there's the sense that it's set in aspect, which means that it's very dependable. And I think people have often thought that uh, if you want to make the English language more dependable, you can make it like Latin. But that's obviously mm. to miss the point that the English language is constantly on the move. because It's a living language, and as people's priorities and interests change, so the language moves on. But, uh, I mean, I find Latin intellectually uh, a very satisfying language in lots of ways. It does things with great economy. But, for example, it's obviously a highly inflected language mm. uh, where word order makes absolutely no difference, whereas everybody knows that word order makes a huge amount of difference in English because English in the, you know, in the modern and early modern period uh, has been an uninflected or largely mm. uninflected language. I mean, it's, it's, sorry, it's not, it's not correct to say we have no inflection, but we have very few and word order is hugely important. So English works very, very differently from Latin, but people have had this sense Sort of, it's a bit like when in Rome do as the Romans do. If mm. you want to create a society which has that sort of imperial quality of Rome, so you should model your language on the language of that society. Now, I'm mm. not suggesting that uh, we necessarily think in those terms anymore, but it was very popular well into the 19th century to think that the problems of English could be solved by using Latin as your model. Well, I was intrigued by the example you gave of um, the poet Dryden, who, who used to sort of test the metal of his poetry by translating it from English into Latin and then back into English. And, and from him, you say, we get this, this rule, in inverted commas, that a sentence should never end with a preposition because it didn't in Latin. That's exactly right. I mean, John Dryden is a very, very influential figure in, in the 17th uh, century. And uh, yes, one of the things he did was testing the purity of his language by translating backwards and forwards between, between Latin and English. And he, at one stage in his career, was quite relaxed about ending uh, sentences with a preposition. But then once he noticed that you couldn't do that in Latin, he concluded that this was a sort of solecism and that he would always end his sentences not with preposition. And he went back and changed some of his earlier writings. So if you compare the 1668 and 1684 editions of, of dramatic poetry, uh, you actually see that he's gone through amending, this, mm. getting rid of the sentence final prepositions. Now, this was influential, but no one actually realized that it was Dryden who'd begun this. 
until his editor Edmund Malone in the 18th century spotted these differences between the 1668 and the 1684 editions. But this is an idea which has which persists to this day, and there's the the famous um, possibly apocryphal example of Winston Churchill, who uh, you know, had a civil servant mm. tidied up his phraseology. And Churchill is supposed to have said, this is the kind of pedantic nonsense up with which I will not put. Mm. <laughs> uh, which really does show how, how much you can mangle the potential mm. felicitousness of your expression mm. by adhering to what some people would call a rule. And actually, this is one of the things that my book's very much about. What are rules? What are laws? What are merely conventions? Yes. I mean, I thought there was a very useful distinction that you made that there are mental mechanisms, you know, sort of Chomskyan patterns which underlie all language. But then on top of those, you distinguish between things which are principles and things which, as you say, are merely conventions. Right. And the, and the, and the point is that at any given moment, there's a lot to be said for observing the conventions. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we should go around behaving anarchically for just the same reason that when you're playing football, you don't suddenly pick the ball up. And, and run around with it. But mm. Obviously, if you do that, you're inventing a new sport. Mm. It's happened. But there are lots of reasons for respecting inventions because we want to be able to communicate with people. And biologically, we are programmed to want to, to survive. And language is what might be called a survival mechanism. Um, so we have a sort of mission to use language in ways that are effective. And it's completely, it's completely ridiculous to suggest that by suggesting the laws are actually only conventions, we are arguing in favour of a society where sort of everything falls apart. But I think one has to recognise that even principles of grammar can shift. How much do you think we're still living with the kind of ideas about language that the Victorians came up with? It seemed to me from the book that a, a lot of the things we had inherited had come from them. Yes, I think that's I think that's very true. I mean, one of the things you get in the Victorian period is a great flowering of sort of amateur scholarship, which is actually very knowledgeable and authoritative, the gentleman scholar. Uh, and one of the things that preoccupied the gentleman scholar in the 19th century was language. Uh, and of course, this is a period when, when Britain is, for, for some time, the most powerful nation in the world. So these people actually making their pronouncements, it's all very much bound up with a sense of the sort of primacy of, of, of Britishness and the need to fortify that, I suppose you could almost say. Mm. Uh, and you get a lot of arbiters of linguistic uh, taste whose work becomes successful because people see using the language well as a way to better themselves socially and the burgeoning middle class and an aspirational lower middle class latch on to these mm. almost self-help books which are all about avoiding Americanisms and things of that nature. Mm. Another thing that we, we uh, get, particularly in the Victorian period, is an obsession with, with purism. Mm. And you get lots of really quite, often quite brilliant people, like, for example, the poet William Barnes, who really think that English should be purged of foreign influences and we should resort to return to a more Anglo-Saxon kind of expression, which is uh, sort of robust. The, the old English vocabulary has a kind of visceral quality. Mm. And there's a sense among these purists that that is preferable and that all the words which have been laid on top of those Anglo-Saxon words coming from French and Latin and other languages debase the language. And that purism is something that persists to this day. People still say things like, oh God, all these awful foreign words. Mm. But if you look at the vocabulary you use day to day, 
a huge proportion of it is stuff that's been borrowed since the Angles and Saxons mm. and Frisians and Jutes turned up here 1,500 years ago. Yeah, if we if we had to give them all back, we'd be we'd be left with quite a small word stock, wouldn't we? Really? Yes, and a lot of the words that were, that we use most are words from that word stock. But there's a whole uh, there are many departments of life that you need sophisticated mm. vocabulary to talk about. You can't talk about things that are really important in our society, like the functioning of the brain or quantum physics, without recourse to highly technical vocabulary. And guess what? That tends to come from places like Latin and Greek. What then do you make, Henry, of um, so-called globish, this, um, this version of English which has also been described as decaffeinated English, which, which really does reduce the word stock down to uh, about 1,500 common terms, and it's the sort of the second language of a large part of the, of the, of the globe? Yes, I mean, I'm not sure about the idea that it's called globish, um, which has been popularized in this country by the writer Robert McCrum, and obviously mm. the person who originates this name is Jean-Paul Merrier, who's someone who spent a lot of his career working abroad for IBM and noticed that there was this sort of stripped down or, as you say, decaffeinated English that was used for business purposes in countries where people needed a lingua franca. Um, I mean, the concept of world English, of English as a, a sort of global second language and a kind of lubricant of commerce and intellectual endeavor, and an instrument of, of foreign policy has been around for nearly a hundred years. And actually, there's a late 19th century book called World English by Alexander Melville Bell, which is mm. a scheme of spellings which are supposed to help learners acquire the language. But I think that what we're seeing now is, is an increasing sort of plurality of Englishes. You can't think of English as something monolithic. There's a whole family of Englishes. And one of the emergent kinds of English is this sort of bare bones, uh, international form. It's quite often observed by people who do international business that if you have native speakers such as Britons, they use a lot of idioms which just don't mm. travel very well to mm. often say a cricket or rugby or, or indeed uh, you know, just other aspects of, of British culture which are really quite uh, unique and distinctive. And if you get rid of those people from the meeting, it all goes much more smoothly because people use this, this much bare vocabulary. It's not, it's not a replacement for English, but it's something which can exist side by side with it. And it's the idea of Globish really is that it doesn't have those Anglo values built into it, mm. it's, that it's something which is ideologically uh, neutral. I mean, actually, I don't think you can ever create it uh, or use any language with, without some ideological freight. But there's yeah. certainly a lot of interest in this. I mean, it's the idea of having an international lingua franca is obviously something which has had other manifestations before Esperanto yeah. being the, the most famous example of an invented language. Globish is sort of somewhere between being natural and invented, but it's satisfying that same desire and that same belief that um, uh, a sort of ideology-free, basic international language can be a, something that you can use to achieve peace and also commerce. I wondered, Henry, if you felt that anxiety perhaps was really at the root of these concerns about our language. You, you alluded earlier to, to never simply being a, a linguistic concern at heart and one's place in the world, one's place in society, how things are going, whether, you know, whether, whether immigration is going to be a threat or, or women's rights, or whatever. Do you, do you think anxiety is sort of at the heart of it all? It's key. And I think one of the reasons that we contest language so much is because it feels easier to solve the problems of language than it mm. does to solve the problems of society. I think this may actually be an illusion. 
lots of people feel that it is possible to take a stand against, say, the abuse of the apostrophe or mm. the disappearance of the semicolon, and that those are battles that they can go and fight. But the bigger social battles you feel as an individual, you can't fight. And I think that the, the, when we argue about language, it's often a manifestation, yes, of much deeper concerns about where society is going and the kind of issues that you mentioned. So, for instance, one of the issues at the moment in, in London, where I live, is the fact that Cockney disappearing. And people mm. used to be quite uh, negative about Cockney, but now it's almost become something that people are nostalgic about. It's mm. being replaced by uh, what's sometimes known as multicultural London English. The mere, the mere name there is, you know, for many people, that's a red rag to a bull. It's mm. not for me. But bound up in that, obviously, are lots of anxieties about what country, what sort of country Britain is. Perhaps finally, I can ask you, you call the book The Language Wars, and I wondered where you saw the battle lines as being drawn today. Where, where do you think the real um, flashpoints are in the language wars today? Well, I think there are really two kinds of language wars. There are things which it might be quite difficult to call wars, which are those little contests over small points of mm. usage the sort of shibboleths and yes. pet peeves, which actually people enter into really vehemently. But, I mean, there, there aren't necessarily going to be human casualties. There. <laughs> but then there are other kinds of language wars, and you see these in, in other societies. I mean, English is a language of huge global importance, and it's a language a lot of people aspire to learn. But as that happens, so there's a sense that elements of British and perhaps particularly American culture leach into mm. foreign cultures and may actually have a damaging effect. Mm. There's a kind of linguistic imperialism uh, that's operating there. Yeah. And there's definitely a resistance to that. And when you get that resistance, there's, a, there's, a, there's friction which can actually then translate into something much bigger. And a lot of resistance to globalization mm. includes a kind of resistance to the encroaching power of English. Mm. But then I suppose there's a third language war, which is actually a sort of bigger fight for who controls the future of the language. I think British people probably think that they own English, but mm. uh, that's not really the case. Nobody owns English. And what's quite clear is that in the 21st century, the center of gravity is moving. In the 20th century, America was the most important English-speaking country. I don't think that's a great revelation. Mm. But in the 21st century, as America's power diminishes, and as India and China become bigger global powers, mm. and as more and more people in those countries speak English, so they're going to wield influence on yes. what English actually is. And I think for a lot of us, that sense that English is almost being taken away from us is quite scary. Henry Hitchings. The Language Wars is out now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the programme, but there's a huge sound archive of around 150 interviews for you to explore at blackwell.co.uk. Click on the podcast tab on the homepage to visit that archive. And you can, of course, find out more about Henry Hitching's books, plus several in the others, by going to the site. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Blackwell Online podcast. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>